the unique thing though about boarding schools is that your teachers are also your coaches. They also live in a dorm with you. So it's a lot of exposure. And a lot of them did not have the language or I guess the mindset to really work with minority students. We had a professor, an English professor, who loved saying the N-word. And like, this is Huck Finn, right? Where they say it like 300 times over. He knew exactly the amount of time. He's like obsessed with it. And he would just say it in the classroom over and over. He would make the students say it. And I'm like, it doesn't even make sense. Like, why do we do this? Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Jared Tingle. Now, unless you're in the finance or VC world, you may not know who Jared Tingle is, but his story is one that is all too universal. Jared is a friend of mine that I really got to know through Twitter. And among all the noise of that platform, that's one of the things I really love about Twitter is that I get to interact with incredible people, including some of the listeners of this show, and really get to know their stories. Well, for Jared, you might look at his life, someone who went to Ivy League colleges, Harvard Business School, worked in high-paying jobs in his 20s, and then started his own VC firm, handling over $170 million in assets, and think that it all came so easy. But that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, Jared wrote out his entire life story on a Twitter thread, and the response was incredible. He grew up in low-income housing and traveled to private schools far away from his neighborhood. His mother worked multiple jobs to pay for those schools, and he lived in the attic with her parents. There is so much struggle and resilience in his story that also felt right to share in celebration of Juneteenth. We'll link to Jared's Twitter thread in our show notes, but for now, stay for the conversation. My full conversation with Jared Tingle after the break. Jared Tingle, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thanks for having me. So the reason that I wanted to have you for this conversation is, first of all, we've had a conversation before on the Brew's other podcast, Business Casual, and I so enjoyed it. I was like, when there's an opportunity to get Jared back on, we got to do it. And a few months ago, I read a thread that you wrote, and I thought it was incredible. And basically, in a way, this thread was like <laughs> your life story in nine or 10 tweets, right? It talked about from your early life living on welfare in your grandparents' attic to now being a millionaire and running a very large and successful venture capital firm. And so where I want to start is understanding why did you write this thread, let's call it two or three months ago, versus when you f were first starting Harlem Capital, however many years ago that was. Thanks for asking and appreciate you having me on here. So that's a, I mean, why did I write the thread then? I mean, Candidly, we had like a little Twitter battle internally for followers. <laughs> Who was your battle with? So Henri and Nicole, my team, uh, both been very active on Twitter. Henri's a natural. He's a co-founder with me. And he's all about like just putting stuff out there, building yep. the public all the time. And Nicole was like super low-key, pretty introverted, but started talking about breaking into VC. And so I'm like, man, like I got to step my followers up, right? Um, but why now, I guess, versus before... 
I've become very comfortable talking about Harlem Capital, but I never really talked about my own upbringing publicly. There was some embarrassing, uncomfortable moments for me. Um, so that was huge. And then actually when I was interviewing for one of my finance jobs and talked about growing up low income, which was a very key motivator for me to try to break into finance so I could have financial stability, a recruiter or interviewer told me, don't talk about that. Huh. You can make your interview uncomfortable. Most people in finance come from wealth, right? And so if you talk about not having, it can make them uncomfortable and potentially diminish your chances. But on the other hand, now that I'm at a point where people may perceive me as having made it, now if people think you're successful, then it's okay to talk about your struggles or your family struggles. But until that point, when you're still climbing a ladder, it is very difficult and potentially can throw you off balance. Which is so interesting. And I don't know, at least my reaction is like kind of fucked up that like you, you can't feel the comfortability to talk about your story. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I mean, my family is pretty low key. And it's, it's one thing to talk about your business. You have hundreds of attempts to practicing, you know how it lands, but yep. like your story is personal. Yep. And so this is the hardest that I ever wrote. I agonized well, I mean, I thought it was incredible. And I thought what the thread did such a great job of is like, I can't empathize with your story because I didn't live your story, but the way you painted a picture of it made it so specific and visceral where like, it got me as close as I thought I could get to truly understanding where you've come from. And I, I'd love for you to share with our listeners, what, what is your story? What was your upbringing like? Sure. So I grew up raised by a single mother in South Jersey, a town outside of Philadelphia. My mom actually was pregnant with me while she was a junior or so in college. Um, her and my dad split up before I was born. Instead of finishing out her degree, she came home and lived with my grandparents. And so she was living in the attic for, for years. She wanted to become a physician. Obviously that's very tough to do if you drop out of school with a kid. And so she was like working at night, you know, working two jobs, was on welfare for a period of time. And I was loved and everything, uh, but it was definitely a very different dynamic than my neighbors had or any of my classmates who started to go to school. My mom sacrificed like literally every penny she had to get me into a private school. And there's nothing wrong with public schools, but in my area, they weren't good. And she saw that I had some abilities, saw that I was like learning, I love reading. And she's like, hey, like, I, I don't want him to get lost in the system. Like, you know what it's like when you don't have teachers who love learning or not in a supportive environment. So did all that and I, I was grateful, but I get there and I'm like, man, like my mom is 10 to 20 years younger than everybody else's parents, right? They all have nice two, three story houses, two cars, they're driving BMWs, Audis, or you have like a, a, a $10,000 Kia. I was embarrassed to get picked up in front of school. I was telling my mom to come late or come around the corner, right? You know, kids shouldn't even have to think about that stuff, right? But when I was in that environment where literally everyone else had, I did not. And it didn't feel good. And when you think back like today to kind of what your mom did to put you in a position for where you are today, I guess what just comes up for you uh, mentally or emotionally? Yeah, so first word of sacrifice, right? Like she... She was not like other moms, right? Her love language is service. And she knew that her life wasn't going exactly how she wanted, but she saw something in me and just wanted to pour into me. Like some, some parents, they're like, 
shopping, they're taking trips, they're buying clothes, shoes, they're hanging out with friends, they're drinking. None of that. Yeah. She literally worked, cooked, cleaned, put every penny she could into to my schooling. Like we lived with my grandparents until I was eight uh, in their attic, right? Not a comfortable living situation. And it's like the selflessness. And then the second thing, which is like, she calls it, you know, not being mediocre, right? Like we're not average. If you have this opportunity, you have to try. And so one thing that sticks out for me is like, despite me you know, doing well in school, when I got to fifth grade, we were working on the ancient Egypt project. And like, I had this big model, like I had like clay figures and paper mache going on. And it got to like 11 o'clock, I just wanted to go to bed. And she's like, no, I will stay up with you. Those are powerful things. And my mom is someone who, she loves by doing. She's not someone who like says a whole lot, right? But I knew how she felt and I saw her actions. And when she did speak, it landed with me. I wanna speak a little bit about the impact of Jared's mom here and the importance of single parents. It's worth noting that America has the largest number of single parent households in the world, and 51% of those single parent households are black households. Now, it's no question that having one functional parent versus two dysfunctional parents is typically a healthier environment for your kids, but in Jared's case, it came with a real financial instability, and this wealth gap became even more apparent as Jared traveled from his low-income neighborhood to his high-income private school. The wealth gap was pervasive, right? Because by the time we got to sixth grade, like, the car was in awful shape. <laughs> it was still the same car from- Same car from when we were like, when my mom bought yeah, one, like at first kindergarten, uh, it was in awful shape. And out of curiosity, like, when did you, when did you first realize that you were poor? Because you, you talk about having this awareness in yeah. kindergarten or first, but I wonder like, did you have an awareness that you didn't have a lot of money? Did you just have awareness that people were different from you? Like, where, when do you think you really realized for yourself that your financial situation was very different from everyone around you? So I think it really hit me when we started, you know, having birthday parties and stuff at people's houses. It's one thing to see a big house. It's another thing to go inside. Like, oh, they have a pool, <laughs> right? Like, they have all these toys that yeah. I don't have. And then my mom, like, she never told me that Santa Claus was real, right? So like she's, if she could not afford something, she just told me, hey, I can't afford it. And so I don't know if she used the word poor, I think she used the word poor, but she definitely was just honest with me because she wanted me to understand why I didn't have some of those things. She just couldn't physically get some of those things. And I'm not sure if my classmates said anything, but I was super self-conscious about it. Mainly because everybody, for everybody else, like this was their normal, it's what they knew. I lived in a historically black town right next to like a really affluent white town. And so even just driving through to where I went to school, you just see the difference instantly. Yeah, like you could feel it just yeah, driving through I mean, town. Kids are town. smart though, right? And so even if things aren't explicitly said, you just know, yeah. right? And so it hit me pretty early and then it just compounded. And then once kids started like traveling and talking about what their family did in their leisure time, then it became very obvious. And it's interesting because it sounds like your mom wasn't necessarily trying to shelter you from your situation. Like it, it almost seemed this balance where she wasn't sheltering you from your situation. She also wasn't trying to thrust this responsibility of not having enough on you. Yep. She just wanted you to be aware so that you didn't almost resent her or your situation because it wasn't actually in anyone's control. Exactly. And then 
One thing, I, one thread I've been thinking about, kind of like the irony that she's trying to help me get a better life, but that process is like very, very difficult. And so I was doing everything I should be doing, but I still had these things outside of my control that were influencing me. So like- What does that, that mean? So if I went to a public school in my neighborhood, I would be normal, right? Uh, I would be the median kid. I wouldn't have more or less than others, right? But putting me in that situation, while it may have been the best thing for me, made me extremely uncomfortable. For high school, um, I got into a program called New Jersey Seeds, and it's or now it's called Seeds Access, but it's for low-income, generally minority students in Jersey, helps them get into top private schools. Tell me how you found out about it. Yeah, so <laughs> this is in a Twitter thread. Uh, but my aunt... She was traveling and she ended up getting a spider bite on her ankle and it turned into like a weird infection. And she basically had to get a nurse to come to her house and treat it for, for months to years. And this nurse from Sierra Leone saw me and was like, hey, like I have this, heard about this program on Oprah. I think your, your, your nephew should apply. I'm like basically past the deadline or like last yeah. day trying to get my application. I thought it was a scholarship program to pay for my middle school because, you know, it was very tough on the family. By that point, my grandma and my aunt were all helping to pay. Uh, but when I got in, I learned, oh, no, we're trying to get you into all these schools I've never heard of, like boarding schools, all these prep schools, like Exeter, Andover, whatever. I'm like, I've never heard about any of these places. I didn't yeah. know boarding schools existed in this country. But then once I got that taste and I found about it, I'm like, oh, this is legit. So I'm like, hey, I want to go to Petty, which is a good school yeah. in Central Jersey. It looks like a college campus when you go. About like two-thirds of the students actually live on campus, one-third are day students. And that was a fascinating experience. I'm curious, what were you on scholarship at Petty? Like so who, I was, who paid for the school? And good, good point. Basically, if you got into these schools, 95% plus your tuition would be covered. And then a light bulb went, I was like, wait, like being low income can actually be an advantage hmm. if you get into the top schools because the top schools have big endowments. Yeah. And it clicked for me like, hey, if I get into top high schools and top colleges, I'll be able to go. This is the game plan. I'm like, wait, let me turn my weakness to strength. Jared's mindset is truly incredible. And I'm so proud of my friend for having this mentality when the situations around him weren't reinforcing these ideals of looking at your situation as a potential advantage. But before he could fully harness that for himself, Jared had to go through witnessing some gaudy levels of wealth and privilege at his boarding school. Interesting environment for sure. My middle school was diverse. Um, socioeconomically and racially, this school was not, right? I think all of the minorities, had, most of them were athletes or aspiring athletes. Totally. Um, you had kids with like yachts, right? <laughs> and everything. Oh, yeah. I and feel so like all these schools, like, like Petty, Lawrenceville, yeah, Andover, yeah. it's like, I always think of them as like the post-grad schools for like the lacrosse player, the hockey player. Exactly. And super white, super waspy. Exactly. So at that point, I realized like there's just a whole other world I, I've never even yeah. fathomed. Um, and so that was interesting, but the good news is that the boarding part made it like an equal playing field for most of them. And the disparities didn't really come up as much until people started driving and everything. And you saw like what they were bringing to campus. The unique thing though about boarding schools is that your teachers are also your coaches. They also live in a dorm with you. So it's a lot of oh, exposure. Wow. And a lot of them did not have the language or I guess the mindset to really work with minority students. And so you started hearing about all these weird stories. Unfortunately, we had a professor, an English professor who loved saying the N-word. And like, this is 
Huck Finn, right? Where they say it like 300 times over. He knew exactly the amount of time. He's like obsessed with it. And he would just say it in the classroom over and he would make the students say it. And I'm like, it doesn't that even make sense. Like, wild. why do we do this? Like, okay, Did fine. that guy end up getting fired or no? No, no, he was like, no, he, he didn't at all. I think he was actually married to one of the deans. He was my football coach, right? Like, Holy shit. <laughs> and we just had too much, we could not get away from this guy. And you can say, hey, it's the time of the times. Hey, it has meaning, whatever. Oh, but either way, imagine being the only black kid in the class with that set. Yeah, it's still fucked up, right? Yeah. So just like weird stuff like that. I think that's just a microcosm of what happens in elite spaces all across the country. Yeah. Uh, and really what happened for me that really showed me that my situation wasn't as unique as I thought it was, was when I started taking AP US history. This is an interesting point Jared brings up. I've heard that a lot of black and POC students have this profound feeling of belonging within trauma while learning about our country's history because our country's history isn't pretty. It's dark and messed up and we're still dealing with a lot of the misdeeds of our founders' decisions today. But for Jared, learning about that injustice fueled him to make change in his life. A big through line, at least, that you reflect on is that how scarcity of money and resources in your life drove you to work really freaking hard mm -hmm. to, to get what you wanted. But as I hear your story, another thing that comes up for me is you are just, you, your intuition is to think glass half full, right? <laughs> right? Because like you, you, the way you just described your experience, I could imagine someone else having that exact same experience and being like, yeah, like... I was in the school. I didn't feel like I belonged. There were freaking racist teachers. Mm -hmm. But like the way you talk about it is, this was what acted as a stepping stone for you to potentially get into your next step at college. It was a way for you to be able to live on your own. And yet, at least me looking, I'm like, it's so freaking unfair that you only had so many options if you wanted to continue to elevate in life. And those options forced you to be submitted to things mm -hmm. that you shouldn't have to be submitted to. So I don't know if you've thought about this yourself, but your take on really shitty or unfortunate situations becoming opportunities for you, like that's huge. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, what helped is just knowing that how hard my family worked to get me here. And like, while it's uncomfortable, I know that it's just, it's still a great opportunity. And yeah. I have an opportunity that most don't have. And so if I'm in the room, if I have the shot, I'm gonna take it. And I know that things always work out, but it's not gonna be my fault it doesn't work out, right? It's gonna be because I put all the effort in is because I ran through the line, right? Yep. And then what happens happens, but I can feel comfortable and go to bed at night and sleep peacefully because I knew that I, I did everything I was supposed to do. Yeah, you control the shit you can control. Today, are you able to celebrate yourself? I am. It was all intrinsic though. And so like why it was weird. And actually when I got to college and I got this award, I didn't even tell my family until like the day of graduating. I was like, if I tell them about this and they just give me a lukewarm response, I'm not gonna feel good about it. Yeah. But I did not have a chip on my shoulder, which other people do, and that can be debilitating totally. sometimes. Why do you think that is, by the way? Because I feel like this is such a common mm -hmm. motivation, especially that people in the startup scene talk about. Like, you know, I've been able to get where I am because I have a chip on my shoulder because those people who told me I couldn't do it early on, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me back up a step, right? Like, I do think having some type of perceived disadvantage or pressure can be healthy, or at least it can be a prerequisite for like having outside success. Um, chips can come in all different shapes and sizes. Again, mine was like the socioeconomic or being one of the only or feeling like an outsider. Uh, but fortunately, again, it didn't come from my family, right? And so the beauty of it was 
my motivation had to be intrinsic. Like I wasn't getting $100 for getting an A. I wasn't going to get a car for graduating, like none of that. I had to find my own motivation. It's going to be because I want a better life for myself. But in the interim, like they're happy for me. They're not going to be like jumping up, dancing, giving me gifts. None of that. It's like you're doing this because you're supposed to and because it's for your benefit. And I think that was ultimately a very, very healthy thing that I didn't fully appreciate, but now I, I completely do. Yeah. So interesting. So let's talk about uh, after Petty. So you went to Penn and that was like kind of another notch on the belt for you to feel this validation. And I feel like you you very clearly create this distinction of the validation you felt was to yourself. It was that you wanted to prove yourself that you were capable of going to an Ivy League school. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. And out of curiosity, and we'll get to Harlem Capital and all of your professional endeavors, but is that what motivates you today? Does that motivation look the same? It does. Once I figured out my situation, there's so many systemic things, right? You talk about enslavement, Jim Crow, not having the ability to get loans easily or live in certain neighborhoods or get access to certain schools. Like that stuff compounds over time. And so once I started realizing like this is less an individual, more of like a system problem, I became focused on that. And I still have this view today where I don't really care if someone likes me or if somebody does something bad or good. I'm focused on the organizations, the systems. How do we change this in mass for people, right? And so that helped me a lot. Like I'm pretty pragmatic when it comes to it. Um, and that motivation is very clear. I'm focused on how do you just create structural change that is much more than what one individual can can do or not do. Okay, and so how has kind of that very like pragmatic approach to finding ways to kind of change the system, how has that led you to where you are today? Yeah. So. I guess fast forward, I knew that I needed to have a baseline level of resources to be able to even think about philanthropy or doing good in the world. And I got pushed into business. Once you go into Penn, everybody's doing investment banker consulting. Yep. I'm like, eh, this is great. <laughs> learn about private equity. You learn, you're able to invest and transform businesses. So yeah, f fast forward, end up getting a banking internship at Barclays, uh, turn that into a private equity job. How diverse was... The, the group of folks when you worked at Barclays? Not diverse at all. Like I was the only black kid in my group, one of a few, I think I was one of maybe two or three in all investment banking in our level, analyst level. But yeah, I mean, that's that's corporate America, that, that's yeah. finance. So I didn't feel necessarily uncomfortable or whatever. I just got used to it by that point. I knew that I wanted to continue to pursue trying to make the world a better place. So I wanted to get these skills. I ended up working at a private equity firm. And I kind of thought like, my path is gonna be trying to make a bunch of money excelling in business and then I'll be able through philanthropy to try to make some difference or maybe you know I never thought I would like run for office I guess I will never run for office but I knew that like if I got to this level I could just make more stuff happen then came Harlem Capital yeah before we push on to that one question I have for you is um did you at all get a, an obsession with money absolutely and, <laughs> and, and, and uh, again like uh, I would say you know for me I had an obsession with money growing up because I was brought up in a Wall Street family where mm -hmm. that was very much the context of what was discussed. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was, you know, it was poor parenting. It was really just that was my environment. But I could imagine for you, like when, when there's something that's very scarce growing up, that becomes a center of attention. So tell me about like what your relationship was with money as you were growing and getting to a point where you're actually starting to make money. It was interesting, right? Like it was definitely a thing I didn't have, a thing that I was obsessed with. And, you know, I wanted to be a millionaire, billionaire, whatever. There was a point in time where like, I wanted money for the sake of money. I realized that what I really wanted was like comfort, right? I wanted to be able to have access. 
I did want material things because other people had them. Like I wanted a car and a house and all that stuff. But what I really wanted is the opportunity just like to be free, yeah. right? To, to do things I wanted to do, like to live in a neighborhood that I wanted to live in, send my kids to school without worrying about it, be able to get them like some modest gifts, right? Because things that my family had a tough time doing. Like yeah. I never wanted that my family to have struggles that, that I had growing up. So it was definitely an obsession. And then I think it was also like a scorecard, right? From growing up, it was grades. Then it was like the college I got into, and then it was going to become money. Yeah. Even though people don't always talk explicitly about it, I knew that like that would make me feel valued and deserving. So yes, I was absolutely obsessed with money. Totally. Tell me about the first place that uh, you ended up working in private equity and why that was such a pivotal moment for what you know now is your full-time job in Harlem Capital Partners. And yeah. also there's something that I believe you've thought a lot about, which is most people don't think about their jobs emotionally, but yeah. why this was an emotional job for you. Sure, sure. So private equity recruiting process is brutal, by the way. Like there's this game theory thing where no one knows when the process starts, right? It could start in November. It could start in August. Who starts the process then? Yeah, it could start in April. Basically, one or two of the big firms decide to start recruiting, and then the other ones move. It's like a fast follow. Fast follow. Yeah. And the crazy thing about it is it's just more of like the institutional bias setting in again because what happens, they just go to the top banks like Goldman or Morgan Stanley, they want those kids. No one has any experience, by the way. Like, no one really knows what they're doing, but they think that those kids are the ones that deserve these golden tickets. Yeah. Um, and the headhunters, they're pattern matching. And so, actually, I did all these, I think I mentioned some of the diversity prep programs, like super polished, tried to know my stuff, probably a little too stiff, but I was getting into these headhunter interviews. And they're like, would you pass the airport test? Like, oh, you're too polished. And like, basically more of those things. Like, yes, if you have parents that are in your industry, you're going to know all this. But if you're a kid who's just been working hard, you're not going to know it. And these jobs are literally life-changing. Like, it's guaranteed eight-figure net worth if you get these jobs, basically. Like, if you stay in a yeah. full career. Did you, because again, I just yeah. continue to look at you as like a perpetually positive person. Yeah. But I'm I, I'm like mad for you, <laughs> thinking about, you know, I'm, you're doing everything possible. Yeah. And it's still not working. Like, do you feel resentment at this point in the process? What are your emotions as it, you're basically felt, getting no's? It felt unfair, right? So I didn't even get, I didn't even get the opportunity. I'm like, I literally was like a top student at Wharton. I've been working hard my whole life. I, like, I could not have done any better, right? And because I didn't work at Goldman, now I have a knock against me. And I found out about this black-owned firm called ISV Partners. Um, was where I was supposed to be. Felt comfortable there. Got the job. They were excited to work with me. And the beauty was this would be the first time I ever was in an environment where I was like around people that look like me. Yeah. And that was life changing, right? I get to ICV, one of my friends, Henri, who I've known since like undergrad through one of the programs, he was working there at the same time as me. And we were just able to soak in all the lessons together. We were able to learn how to be investors. We were learn, able to learn how to work with management teams. We learned all the things that go into building a firm that you actually wouldn't get if you worked at a bigger firm. So ended up all those things put me on the right path to one, for the first time, feel like fully comfortable in my own skin, feel like I deserve to be there, know that like, hey, if I just keep going down this path, I can be successful without a doubt. I can be treated fairly without having to worry about if anyone's biased against me. So that was a life-changing opportunity for me. Yes, I learned a lot, but being in that environment was exactly what I needed at the time, because again, I still never felt fully secure. Like I was 
able to figure out ways to to get forward and to be strategic, but I still felt like I was chasing. I felt like an imposter. Yeah. Right. But once I got there, like I'm like, hey, no, I can do this. I deserve to be here. Let's make it happen. How old were you when you joined uh, ICV? Yes, I would have been like 24. So it took 24 years to just <laughs> like feel like you actually finally like I I can I can just focus on doing my job without worrying about all these macro things that I can't control. Even at his job, Jared didn't see reflections of himself all around him, but he persevered with the small community that he had. And it turned out that one of those people in his black private equity community was Henri Pierre Jacques, and meeting him would be the catalyst for Jared to start his VC firm, Harlem Capital. We're gonna take a quick break here, but when we get back, we'll get into how Jared and Henri hedged their bets in starting their company, and how they were trying to convince billionaires to invest a measly couple of million dollars into their fund. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We're back with Jared Tingle, who has been telling his story growing up on welfare to then hustling his way into prestigious private schools and universities while facing the racial inequities of being a minority in a very white space. Now, Jared tells us about meeting Henri, his partner at their VC firm, Harlem Capital. He became one of my best friends uh, because we we learned together. And a few months in, we're like, hey, working at this firm, it's a great opportunity. We don't have any economics. Like, we don't have profit sharing. We can't invest in these companies. Why don't we do our own thing? And so we had talked about pulling money to start investing in, you know, startups, whatever. And then one day he actually just gets up. We're cute mates. He gets up, stands up over the cubicle and says, hey, do you want to put in 10K? I'm like, sure. You know, we're making okay money. We can figure out what we're doing. We learned a little bit. Do you remember what that first business was that you wrote a check into? Yeah, yeah. So that that like that weekend or the next weekend, we get together in my living room in Harlem. I still live in that apartment, by the way. How many years later is that? Eight How years many? later. Wow. It's, it's wild. Wow. Uh, we're eating like Popeye's chicken. <laughs> uh, no plan, but we're smart guys. We actually got our roommates together and one other guy, and we're just trying to figure out like, hey, let's make an agenda. The first business that we invest in, you know, technically we did two early investments. Um, one was like a commodity exchange called CCX. We got in through SPV. Mm-hmm. First deal that we saw looked great, you know, ended yeah. up ended yeah, up getting our money back. Nothing too special. Like yeah. we didn't even meet the team because we invested basically through an entity. Yeah. But the second business we invested in was a coffee shop called Harlem Coffee. It does not exist anymore. Uh. <laughs> but we learned a lot. Like we learned how tough small business is. 
we actually came up with the name Harlem Capital because of that. Like, you're like, oh, Harlem Coffee, it sounds great. And so at that point, when you guys were looking at Harlem Coffee, you were already thinking about going full-time on your own thing? We were not. Okay. No, so we were friends investing money. The reason why I wanted to have a name is because we thought it would help us see deal flow. Like, we're 25-year-olds. We had 50K total pool, writing yeah. super small checks. Like, why should anyone take anything? Yeah. We have no experience. Uh, but we said, hey, if we like make a website, have a brand, all these things that I didn't really want to do. I was like the antagonist here. Yeah, yeah. We could actually build up a firm, see better flow, and eventually turn it into something. No desire to make it full time. We just thought it would be cool to invest together. Yeah, and make you guys appear bigger than you actually were at the time. Exactly. When was that turning point? The real turning point came when Henri and I decided to go to business school. Henri got in first round of Harvard. I didn't want to go to business school because I was scared of the sticker price. Ended up, you know, ponying up, thinking it was the best thing to do. It ended up being a good thing to do. We get there. We're roommates. Andre and I are roommates again. He wants to go into VC, but it's like, wait, there are no VC firms with black partners. Like, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I want to make money because I don't come from money. I want to work at KKR. I want to work at the biggest shop possible to make this MBA price worth it. Didn't get the KKR job. But by that point in time, like, we had a decent brand. We had spoken on events. We're getting some press, and we're like, "Hey, let's try to let's try to do it over the summer. Let's try to actually raise a fund." Because by this point, have the connections, have a semblance of a strategy. We decided to focus on investing in minorities, people of color, and women, and we had no idea if it would work out. <laughs> like, I believe what we were doing, and I knew it was important. I did not think we were going to be able to raise the money. By that point, we're like 26. <laughs> we're literally MBAs. Like, we don't have a bunch of rich or super wealthy friends or family connections, right? Like, no one at the time had really been proven out you could invest in diverse founders as a strategy. Like, there were some groups like Female Founders Fund or Focus on Women, but no one really with the uh, ethnic lens who had actually raised a fund. Even we knew about a couple groups of, like, black partners, but they were, like, 40, and they still could only raise, like, 30 or $40 million dollars. So we're just like, hey, like this is an uphill battle. We don't know, we don't have VC experience, yep. right? We had only been doing our angel deals. Did, did it end up being an uphill battle when you went to raise your first? It was one? brutal. It was brutal. What was the process <laughs> like? It was it was brutal. So, like it's it's crazy. I mean, you, you think that if you're trying to back diverse founders, that people who are diverse, yeah, you would, think the floodgates would open. Not necessarily the floodgates would open, but you think they would be supportive. But yeah. We were getting like a ton of bad feedback, right? We had, um, I'll never forget this guy. Uh, we had a, an HBS alum who actually invited all the black current students to his house. Yeah. He's a hedge fund manager, um, probably being too specific already. <laughs> but we went around the room. Everybody said what they want to do. We're talking about Harlem Capital. Actually, I didn't even talk about it because Henri was talking about yeah, it. Yeah. I was afraid to like yeah. even put it myself out there. And he's like, hey, I think you guys need to get more experience. And literally, I'm like, all right, cool. That's his opinion. I run into this guy probably like five more times before I graduate. Every oh, time, my God. Same old thing. You need to get more. I'm running to him at the barbershop. Like, you need to get Jeez. more experience. I'm like, dude, you would think your professors would be supportive. They were not. They are like, hey, funds are so hard to raise. Like, I don't believe in your strategy. What industries do you focus in? So we started trying to raise right before our first summer uh, in April. We didn't know what the, we were doing. We sent out a mass email, crickets, no responses. There was a black alumni conference. We were like shaking hands, kissing babies, trying to get excitement. It was tough. And we're like, hey, man, I don't think we know what we're doing. Uh, but fortunately, we had some mentors who were able to get us some big meetings. And we started to like 
finally get some money dripping in. We got better. Who was like, the first check in? The first check, uh, early check was our old boss. From Re ICV? For, reluctantly, uh, you know. This was the guy you described as neutral when you were first yeah, talking to him. he was neutral, it, right? but he, we ended up convincing him. But yeah, he wanted, he, he's a good guy. He wanted to be supportive, right? We ended up getting one of the co-founders KKR to be uh, early investor, which was life-changing. Because if somebody that smart is backing you, then, then you're good. Yeah. But until that point, though, it was tough. And even at that point, we only had $3 million raised. And so one thing that we did that helped supercharge success was we just did a small close. We decided to do a small first close of $2 million to try to prove our strategy. Like, hey, let's actually start investing like we're a fund. People may get it. And it was a big bet. And, and mind you, right, I don't have an, a safety net. The money I did have, we angel invested. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, we got to figure out a way for this to be fully baked before we graduated. So I did have doubts, right? Rightly so. But I was focused on just like making sure I was pressure testing all of our assumptions, our materials. And so we were so prepared. Yeah. And again, it comes back to like just fortunately or unfortunately, like how freaking strategic and prepared you have to be because you didn't have another option, right? It's like, I look at my scenario of starting a business and everyone's like, oh yeah, you took such a leap of faith. It was so risky for you. And, and I'm like, yeah, I, you can't bucket all entrepreneurs in the same way because their risk profile actually looks very different based on their circumstance. For me, starting Morning Brew, right? If Morning Brew failed six months later, there was going to be something. Yeah. And if there wasn't something, I had the privilege of having enough money in my family where my mom could pay my rent for a year and I could go figure shit out. And I say that to people because then I look at like your story. I'm like, someone like Jared had so much more to lose and had so many less options if Harlem Capital didn't work out. And so like, I just give you so much credit because it really is so much more of a leap than I had to take. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, entrepreneurship, I admire anyone who does it because like no matter what your circumstances are is always a steep hill to climb. And the crazy thing about a fund is technically it should potentially be easier to raise a fund, right? Because if somebody raises a fund, there's a tighter distribution of outcomes. Like you're probably not going to lose money completely. Like yep. worst case, you return 50 cents on a dollar. Best case, you return 5x. But people are more comfortable betting on entrepreneurs because they can assess the business. They can bet on the person. Funds, you're giving people a blind pool of money to invest. Yeah. You're betting on people who are betting on people. And so that was just, it's a really tough road. Like we got in front of billionaires and got them to invest, and they would give us a million dollars. Like, wait a second, a billionaire is going to give us a million dollars? Like, yeah. <laughs> we're grateful, but we're not. there's not going to be enough people we can get in front of to actually get us funded. We eventually had to get institutions. So talk about where Harlem Capital is today. How much have you raised? Things are good. We took a bet. It worked out. TPG became a big anchor investor for us, which was life-changing. We've since raised our second fund. Cumulatively, we've raised $174 million. Wild. Which is great. Uh, so now we're like actually able to pay ourselves decent salary. We're a team of seven. We've done 43 investments between our two funds. We were able to have great institutional backers. We have a pension fund, endowments, foundations, bunch of corporations, Apple, PayPal, Bank of America have all supported us publicly. Um, and then after that, I think it was like we were able to go to these firms' annual meetings with the TPGs and KKR's annual meetings. We're fundraising there and like once you break into that community, you know that all these people know each other. If you get some of these people to back you, the endowments will back you because they're on the boards of the endowments, right? Like all stuff works together. And like, I think we just figured out how wealth works, right? Like access, wealth, information all travel together. 
and it is so unfortunate for people that are outside. Yeah. But once you're in, you are in. Like, I found out about like angel deals and NFTs and yeah. crypto like way earlier just because I'm in the room now, right? And I don't think it's fair. But once you're able to find a way in, if you do what you're supposed to do, right, like you can stay in. So I think those two things made it easier. We still have a lot to do. We're still very early days for us. I think the hardest part, hopefully, what was done now is all about helping our companies grow, return capital. And it's way more focused on just helping our founders than it is trying to raise money. Well, you talk about it, it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, <laughs> once you're once you're in Fight Club, everyone knows about Fight Club. <laughs> but when you're out of it, you have no idea what the fuck no, Fight Club no is. So, you know, you're in it now. But like you said, it's, you know, unfair to those who can't be included in the circle. So when you think about going back to kind of your motivations for everything that you're doing now, talk about where this kind of yes. all loops in. Yeah, we've been all over the place. So I'm glad you brought it back home. Um, so yeah, I mean, early on in like high school and college, I was thinking about like revitalizing inner city areas, right? Like that was my thing. Like how do you make Camden or Detroit yep. a place where it's viable and people of color are able to get jobs, right? Um, I then learned about the bureaucracy that has to happen for you to like to try to convince the public sector to move with you. So <laughs> kind of let those things go for a little bit. But I realized how powerful the private sector was. How do we actually change the racial wealth gap? And we realized like entrepreneurship is probably the best thing you can do in the private sector outside of, again, public intervention to really change this. We realized that if you back people of color-led companies, they can acquire wealth. They can hire people and they could reinvest in their communities. Like think about the PayPal mafia, like how much wealth opportunity was created because of that, right? Yeah, like, mind-blowing amount. Right, those people spin out money. Anyway, so we that's part of the ethos about Harlem Capital is trying to change the racial wealth gap. We're now focused on three key things. One is to put capital in the hands of these diverse entrepreneurs for the reasons I mentioned. It'll change their lives, their communities' lives, and create more success. Two, we want to create more pathways into VC. Part of the reason why you know, black people and women and Latinos only get 4% of all VC funding without mixed teams is because there's so few check writers that support them at the earliest stages when it's all about what they're going to do in the future. It's all about their yep. vision and how much you relate to the VC. So us having a firm, but also sharing information, creating more pathways through our internship program, getting more people into the industry is paramount. Then lastly, we are like you focus on media, we're focused on storytelling because that is how you change hearts and minds. Like it's not facts and data, it's storytelling. We're human beings, we deserve these rights, we can all empathize with this. And I think that same thing is needed in VC, right? Because if you ask someone, what does a CEO look like? What does a VC look like? They're gonna think a white guy, yep. right? This is what we're up against. And so it's just important to build in public, change hearts and minds through storytelling and then open that door and just prove it. I don't even think it, hit me like how revolutionary what we're doing was like we were young black guys walking down the street smiling talking about finance no one was doing that before yeah. and it felt natural but that in itself was was important and i'm so glad we decided to do it totally and to really bring this thing full circle the first question i asked you was this thread that you wrote two or three months ago right why did you write it and what really strikes me as powerful about it is now imagine like a a seven-year-old jared living in their grandparents' attic with their mom who can see the story of a Jared now in his 30s who is a millionaire and who went from welfare to having their own venture fund that's raised $170 million. Imagine if you had that when you were growing up. Yeah, now I would love for anyone who's made it 
from an underserved background and not have to do that. But I feel like I have a responsibility, even if it makes me uncomfortable. I joked about the Twitter battle and all that stuff, right? What really got me over the line was like, hey, I think I could inspire people yeah. by doing this. There's folks that need to see this. And I'm at a point now where like, I'm comfortable enough. I've proved myself enough. Let me start being vulnerable. Let me share because it could literally change people's lives. Totally. Right? Even if I never see them, it could potentially change someone's life. I love that. Well, we're gonna finish up with uh, some lightning round questions. Okay. That's cool with you. If instead of me sitting here, a six-year-old Jared is sitting here, you can say one thing to him, what are you saying? Don't be afraid to ask for help. You can do it, but you'll be much better off if you learn from other people's mistakes and successes. Love it. What's your biggest insecurity about your business? How much is outside of our control? And ultimately, a lot of luck and a lot of things have to happen after we invest that we can't really influence. And last question for you. Someone's reading your eulogy. What is the thing that you would want them to say about you? I want them to say that I'm someone who gave life his all, uh, tried to enjoy every day, and made the world a better place. Jared, thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Alex. If there was one word to describe Jared Tingle, for me, it would be resilient. He has endured what so many people in his position just simply haven't because inequities are sewn into the fabric of this country. And it is a fact that when you're born wealthy, chances are you're going to stay wealthy. Jared's story proves that the American dream is a complicated concept in 2022. It isn't always true, and it takes a lot of factors, including having incredibly giving and loving parents to even have a shot at working out. Jared's story has given me an appreciation for my own situation, and I hope it did for you too. Please make sure to check out Jared's Twitter, where he lays out his story in full, and read up on Harlem Capital's mission as well. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni, and Michaela Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer, and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Jeff Morrow. Emily Milliron is our video producer, and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler and Jeff Morrow. Now, Imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We wanna make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at and I'll get back to you as soon as possible.